0: Good afternoon, everyone,
1: and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are in the middle of October. It is the busiest month for us here at College Coach. As you can imagine, so many students are scrambling to get their application materials ready in order to submit. And we can imagine that for many of you listeners, if you're a parent of a senior well, it's a pretty busy time around your home as well. Uh, we want to tackle exactly what you're up to right now as you're pulling together all of these application materials with our first segment. And so to do that, we're going to welcome this show's producer, who occasionally will make cameos on the show as a feature expert, uh, Lauren Randall. Hey, it's great to great to see you this morning.
2: Thanks for having me, Ian.
1: Uh, it's great to have you here. And I just I just like gave away that we record at different times than we actually broadcast because I said morning, but I said, anyway, that's not important. We can edit that out and post. Um so Lauren, November first is the big the big day in our world. Um and I think historically it had been January first, but so many more schools these days are offering early action. Early decision is a big topic of conversation. And so, A lot of people are looking at that November 1st date on their calendar as the big time when they need to have a lot of their materials submitted. So we wanted to spend some time today just talking about how to get yourself in order in order to be able to uh, make those submissions at that point. Um, So we're right in the middle of October. What are you telling your students as they're staring down these deadlines and thinking about them arriving within a couple of weeks? Are there major words of advice that you're imparting uh, across those, those kids?
2: Well, I have to be totally honest here. It's, it's just do it, do it, do it. I mean, I, I don't know what it, what's going on this year, but I think we, you know, we, we were chatting within our team uh, recently and saying, you know, how does, how does October feel compared to September and compared to last year? And I said, you know, September was, got a little bit quiet, um, which scares me because that means October is going to be nuts. Um, So, I'm feeling like there's a lot of procrastination going on. So mm-hmm. I really want to talk about, you know, the time that there is left, because there is still some time here, what you can be doing, and whether you should be rushing to to get it in, you know, whether that's worth it. Um, but making the most of, of this remaining time. And let's not forget, though, you know, November 1st is what we say, you know, kind of that first big deadline. There's a few outliers. I mean, there's some October there 15th. Out there, there's right. rolling admissions, that, so you know don't forget to actually watch your your own deadlines for your application list.
1: Now, I think that the first deadline that is like a drop dead deadline is University of Florida, if I'm not mistaken, on November 1st. And so we are here. We are talking about early action deadlines. When we talk about the 10 15 deadline for UNC or for Georgia residents with Georgia Tech. If you miss these early action deadlines, you can, of course, still apply a regular decision. But why do we encourage students, Lauren, uh, to aim for early action and to submit applications by that date, if at all possible?
2: Sure. Well, first of all, I want you to enjoy your senior year. Right. The, <laughs> right. M- the longer this hangs over you, the more stress that there is. You, you're, you're, you know, your parents are going to harp on you when you want to go to homecoming games and things like that. Well, have you done your college essay? You know, right. Get this off your plate. This, for the most part, it's one big essay, some application work. You know, this, it can be a lot of work depending on your application list. But if you chip away at it, it is manageable. But if you let this go and let this go, you know, I I want you to move on with your life. That's right. That's one part of it. Um, The other part of it is typically, not always, depends on the school, but typically, you know, if you apply early action um, you're most, you're more likely to get a response earlier in in return. And that's really helpful. First of all, I hope it's positive. I hope it builds your self-esteem This you know, you, you feel you're, you're built up. You can talk, chat about, you know, your future with your friends and family. It's really exciting, but let's say it's not good news. Hopefully that still gives you enough time to make some other decisions um, to submit other applications. So, you know, having that response early is is helpful. At some places, some schools, there can be a statistical or, you know, an acceptance rate difference. It can help. Um, That really varies by school. So that's another thing that we usually talk about. Is there any strategic advantage about applying early?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I'm reminded of a student I had a couple of years ago who was a wonderfully talented student, and she just so happened to be applying to schools that didn't have any early action options for her. And in mid-December, late December, all of her friends at school were hearing back from from places they'd applied early action, getting into schools. And she was worried just by virtue of the fact that she wasn't hearing back from her colleges. Now, there's no reason that she should have been because they didn't offer early action, so she couldn't have applied that way. But if you have this opportunity, you don't want to be in a position where your friends at school got in and heard they got into a school that you didn't make the deadline for and now you're waiting until regular decision. It just is going to drag things out such that you'll be much more stressed, I think, than you would would be otherwise. There's, there's also an element, Lauren, of just like, you've got a lot of work to do across all of your applications, and there is a way of naturally segmenting that workload according to these deadlines, so that you do a handful of schools before November 1st, and then you do some after November 1st. How do you recommend that students put their colleges in order right now? Let's say I'm looking at nine or 10 schools that I want to apply to. How should I think about putting those in order of how I'm going to tackle applications?
2: That's a a great question. And I don't know that there is a correct one-size-fits-all because I think there's a couple of different scenarios here. First of all, you need to know what application. It's not always up to you, right? If the school offers early decision or regular decision or early action or rolling, you need to just compile that information. Know for your list what is offered and when. So that's first. Um, I usually say, so it would make sense to prioritize based on your top choices, what you're most excited about. But I usually say, let's not miss any freebies here. Yeah. If there are any on your list that don't have significant uh, supplemental work, that's a no-brainer. Get that application off your, uh, off your plate because it's just the common app work and then some form questions, no actual additional writing. So no. that's, I get so frustrated with students when they say, oh, well, you know, I didn't submit that school because it was not the top of my, my list. So what, <laughs>
1: right? Get it's it out on of here. your
2: list for yeah. a reason. Um, you know, it made it there so you can get that off.
1: And uh, I had a student that last month finished her personal essay and we, we were happy with it and wrapped it. And basically within the next week she said, so I've submitted my application to three schools now. Because none of them required supplements, and it it was great. She was like, "I've I've applied to college. Like I've taken that first step, and it, it didn't take any extra work." So so definitely look for some of those freebies that are going to be easier for you to to tackle at the, at the start. Then then where do you turn, Lauren?
2: Then I do think it it should be based on your own priorities within the rest of your list. So, you know, we're, and I guess also how, how much work you've done to this point. I mean, we're at mid October. So right. if your list now contains 10 early action schools, all with supplements, supplemental essays, and you haven't started any.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: that's going to be an upward battle by November 1st. So I would look at it based on, you know, your interest in the schools, but also maybe, your chances, you know, just choosing the ones that the that's the furthest, you know, stretch for you based on you know your measures or based on the selectivity of the school might not be the best option as opposed to banking on those targets, um, which you know can be a toss up when it comes to regular decision. So I don't think it's just based on how you feel about the school. I think it's also being smart about where it falls on your list. And, you know, having some for early action that is distributed across those different categories of of selectivity.
1: That's a great point because you said earlier that when you get some early action decisions back in December, it can help you in some ways to recalibrate if you've heard from schools and you didn't get in. But if you apply only to the farthest reaches that you have by early action, that decision isn't really telling you anything. Um, You're not learning a whole lot from that because those are schools that were unlikely to begin with. But if you have a better distribution across that early action list. Now you might be able to say, okay, well, I got into the schools I was counting on. My target accepted me, so that's pretty good, and I didn't get into one of my reaches, so I'm feeling pretty good about where things are right now. Um, That can't happen if you only apply to reach schools across the list. Um, What about, you know, sometimes students will consider the restrictive early action options. There are four schools, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, that offer this, um, and it's somewhat limiting. Yeah. What do you think about students thinking about those four schools as an early action option, especially if it prevents them from applying early action to other institutions?
2: Well, I think the best way to answer this is to give a, a, an anecdote here from a student I worked with um, in the past couple of years. Um, she came to me on October 1st mm-hmm. for a November 1st restrictive Stanford early action application. She had done she was. She's incredible, right? She is, she is a strong writer, a reflective yeah. writer. She knew herself. She knew what she was going for. So just to give our listeners some perspective, this is an awesome student, had yeah. everything go- going for her. But as of October 1st, she had done no work yet. She worked for the entire month of October with me just on her Stanford application. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that she, it was a great application. Could I have used a little bit more time with her? Yes. Because there's also life going on. Right? Yeah. She's also yeah. a student, and there are tests and homework. So it took her one full month just to chip away that one application. She could submit no other early action applications. Um, it was a little frustrating. I, I won't lie. And I'll also be honest. So now we're mid October. If she had come mid October and said, "I'm applying," without having started for Stanford, it was not it was not going to be worth her time. So you know the point here yeah. is, how do you know if you're ready to submit? Well, sometimes yeah. it's the opposite. How do you know if you're not ready right to submit? You know, yeah. there would have been, it would have been not in no way humanly possible to to get that together to the standard that yeah. Stanford wants right. um, within two weeks. Yeah, I don't know and if that I, really answers your question or not. But, no,
1: yeah. no. I I mean I think that is really helpful, and, and it was one thing that I was going to get to um, a little bit later was like when you're staring down these deadlines, how do you know? And I, I want to come back to that, but I, I do think also you know, if you're, if you're the student that you worked with, I think if she's looking at Stanford early action, restrictive early action, and then she's got a lot of public schools with early action on her list, then applying restrictive early action to Stanford only limits her in terms of the distribution of time. And you're sitting there as an educator and saying, well, I know this is your priority, but you could put a perfect application together and still not get in. Mm -hmm. And it's not quite the tip that early decision gives where it really changes, changes your chances of getting into that particular school. And so, you know you want to follow that student's priority and what their 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 top school is but you also want to say look there are these other schools that you might have four answers in your back pocket by December instead of this one answer that might not even be a yes and so that's I think that is an important question for students to think about as they're balancing those restrictive early action options because they're not just limiting in terms of the number of schools where you can apply ea they're limiting because those, are all beastly supplements. Stanford has eight essays, Yale has eight, Harvard has one that's so long and with no real guidance or limitation on what to do. Um, you know, Princeton's really tough. So keep that in mind, I think, as you're looking at it. Um, so let, that is the big question, right, that you mentioned, which is how do you know when you're ready to submit? Um, let's say it's a week and a half from now, it's October 25th, you know, people are getting ready for Halloween, but they're also getting ready for November 1st. Uh, what do I, how should I know that I'm ready? Um, and when is it the right time to say, you know what, I would love to apply early action, but I, I I should wait for regular decision. How do you make that hard call?
2: Yeah. So if, well, let's start there. If, if you have not done any work yet, um, and it, you are now staying up every night or, or you're just not confident that this is your very best work, it might not be worth it. Um, Especially, I would say, if the school has a very, very low acceptance rate, you don't just throw out an application, right? It doesn't work yeah. that way. You say, oh, let me see if it sticks. Like, it, it's not going to, right? right? The quality of your application needs to be phenomenal. So that might be one that's just you're not ready um, because you haven't given yourself the time that that application needs. Now, you know, if you are on the flip side, you have anguished over this since you know spring of junior year, and you've you've worked with your your school counselor or you know your your English teacher, whoever that that somebody else is for you, because I really do believe in somebody else at minimum proofreading it for you. Yes. Um, but maybe it's yes. you know it, it's somebody that you really trust. Does it sound? It's not just for grammatical errors. It does it sound like me? So if you've been through that editing process, this is not your first draft, and you've looked at these essays over and over again for months on end, it is time to let go. And that is scary. Yeah. I, I have stu—I have a couple students right now that are emailing that I have signed off on these essays long ago. And they say, well, I changed some punctuation or I'm really afraid of a typo. You know, it it, it is nerve wracking. It's a lot of work, but it is time to let go. It's
1: time to or push submit, that button. Not let go. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you're right. I mean, you do have to come to a point where you say, this is really solid. I'm confident in this. Um, Maybe there's something I could change if I was given infinite amounts of time. But you also have all these other schools that you need to work on. So, you know, hanging on to one application is going to delay your ability to start to focus on some others. And there are very few students right now who are totally on top of everything where they're just kind of biding their time uh, to submit their handfuls of applications. Um, Now, in our next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about essay writing for the personal essay. And I think that You know, if people are still in a position where they're working on the personal essay, it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to hit these early action deadlines. But I want to go back to an initial point that you made, Lauren, which was look up the deadlines, figure out what the rounds of admission are going to be. Um, There are some schools that have early action November 15th deadlines. Where would you recommend that students go for the most reliable information along those deadlines and those rounds of admission for the schools they're interested in?
2: The common application is the easiest spot. I mean, the dashboard will tell you what the, the deadlines are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but otherwise it's gonna be the the admissions website for each individual college. That's just a little more tedious, but as long as the school is in the common app, it will give all the rounds of that they offer and the deadlines.
1: And we are very big believers that students should really drive this process. But if you're a parent out there trying to help your student, the one thing on the Common App that you can help them with is adding schools to their dashboard and verifying some of these deadlines. That's a great way to provide some support when it comes to actually filling out the Common App. That's for the student to do. But you can actually look up these deadlines and help manage the project a little bit. Um, All right, Lauren, I guess we should just wish everybody good luck uh, because we got two weeks to go, uh, including you and me. So good luck to you.
2: Good luck and, and Godspeed.
1: Yep. All right, folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about essay examples and the personal statement and whether these are worthwhile or not and should you use them. And I don't know, we don't even know what the segment's going to be, but we're excited to do it. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back.
0: College admissions can be stressful You are listening to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: All right, folks, welcome back to this week's episode of Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. I'm really excited for this next segment, uh, partly because we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but also because I think there's something that's just been on my mind, and I've had a conversation with our next guest about this a number of times, in thinking about how students are working on the college essay. Now, um, my next guest is Christine Sawicki, and and, uh, she's joining me here from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Hey, Christine, I want to welcome you because you're on video, and so people can see you, but I've got more to say. Uh, Hi, Christine, how are you?
3: Hi, Ian, thanks for having me.
1: I'm glad to have you here. Um, and you know, we were talking about the students are really it's mid October and I think it's been a tough year for students, uh, getting more comfortable with getting back in school, just changes in expectations about what the workload has been. And that accumulation of pressure and work has, I think caused a lot of students to push their work on their essay off a little bit. Um, Has that been sort of part of the experience that you've seen in conversations that you've had with families uh, over the last few weeks?
3: Yeah, I I think there's been um, more of a delay in getting work started and the momentum has been building slower this year than in past years. Um, I think likely as a result of the transitions you just mentioned of being back in school full time.
1: And because of that, I think, you know, usually we wouldn't have a segment on the personal essay in the middle of October, but we also perceive that a lot of students are in the process of writing their personal essay or even brainstorming their personal essay at this moment. And when it becomes hard, I think, to conceive of what this essay is supposed to be, uh, students will often turn to examples. They want to see what is a good college essay. And so they look online for examples. They'll read the Costco essay. Right. If you have heard of the Costco essay, you know what I'm talking about here, which is a, an essay a student wrote all about going and visiting Costco, and she got into a number of top schools. And we've been talking a little bit about examples, Christine, um, in the context of college essay writing and why there are some problematic aspects to this approach for students. Um, do you tend to show your students examples when you are working through the initial phases of the essay process? Let's pretend we're not even in October, but like just early on. What is the role of essay examples in your practice?
3: Yeah, um, they're fairly non-existent um, in my, my personal practice and working with students. Um, the heart of the personal essay is the student. And so I like to put actually the prompts to the side, any expectation of what this essay should be to the side, and always begin with a personal reflection with the student. And um, if a student comes with preconceived notions of what it is, um, with examples in mind, I like to break that down because if they are writing for what they think it should be, they're missing the very first most important piece and that this should be all about you and and in a place where you feel like you can write in an authentic
1: way. I think that's really key is that when you start asking questions of what is this supposed to be, you're getting outside of your strengths already. And you're making a lot of assumptions about what you perceive a quality essay to be when you haven't really been in an admission office. You haven't really looked at those essays and you haven't been a part of that decision-making process. Now, examples, I think, you know, people might be wondering, well, why, why can examples help. I mean, I saw that there was this essay that was posted online and this kid got into Harvard and they wrote this essay. So this essay got them into Harvard, right? Or why doesn't that work, Christine? What, what is wrong with that assumption?
3: Uh, uh, yeah. Um, I think the particular Costco essay that you mentioned said, you know, that she got into five schools because of this essay. And um, I think the subtitle should be well maybe she got in despite (laughs) having written this essay you don't know the greater the the greater context that's around it um
1: yeah no you're right and and um binary decision right like if you apply to a college you get in or you don't but there is nothing in that letter that says we really liked your essay we weren't so impressed with your grades we okay. wish your scores had been higher, but your essay was really, like, there's none of that information. And so students always assume, I think, because the essay is the closest thing to this application, that it is the most important thing. Yeah. When in fact, it is important, but your four years of grades are more important. Like, the things you do outside of the classroom are more predictive of what you're going to do at the college level. Right. And so a lot of students will say, I got in because of my essay, when their essay isn't all that good. Yeah. Um, go ahead.
3: I think kind of um, more problematic and what I see when students look at a lot of examples is um, they they lose the confidence in their own voice and how they're approaching writing the essay. They yeah. feel that they need to have a gimmick or a perfectly circular ending that brings something back together, or it needs to be as funny as what they read. And all of these expectations dampen their confidence in their own writing that they're doing and that just defeats the whole purpose of this essay, which is where you should feel proud and authentic in what you're delivering. So um, I think if students are to approach looking at examples, um, it should only be after they have done some reflection and thinking about what they want to say, how they want to deliver it. And maybe there might be some little great eye-opening ideas that might come from looking through examples, but it shouldn't be the driving force of what an essay should be that
1: is a good one. We've talked previously previously about the importance of reading in terms of informing writing. And um, I I think that you can sometimes get inspired by something that you read or, or a particular thing touches off in your mind like, oh, that reminds me of something that I can write about that's connected to my life, but not structurally and not in terms of the form and not in terms of the style that's being used. And I think another... Uh, trap of the example essays is that people don't publish example essays that are fairly normal, mm-hmm. uh, that feel simple. They publish the ones that are riskier yeah. because it's like, oh, well, this must have been the reason. This is such a crazy essay. This must be why this student got in. Well, a- actually, the student was the point guard recruit. And so the coach really wanted him on the basketball team. And that's why he got in. So you, you have to be cautious because When I'm publishing a book of essays, I'm not gonna publish a bunch of essays that look fairly similar to each other. I'm gonna wanna publish essays that are really outrageous and have humor and are unique in some some respects. Um, But a lot of these essays, when we were talking about this previously, can be great writing, great pieces of writing, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily great college essays. You wanna talk a little bit about the distinction between a good piece of writing and a good college essay?
3: Yeah, um, I think sometimes those can be one and the same. You can have a great piece of writing that is also a great personal sure. essay. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, but um, I think that you can have a great piece of writing that misses the content uh, that is most relevant to an admission officer's perspective for the purpose of why this essay is being written. Um, I think a real classic example is a wonderful essay that reflects deeply on your childhood. And admission officers aren't so concerned about when you were six or seven. They're interested in who a more contemporary version of who you are today. So a great essay about seven-year-old you is not going to be nearly as effective as perhaps a less creative, more direct delivery of a more contemporary you.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that, that that kind of comes through in that in that Costco essay a little bit is like there's this history of this person's experience as she makes her way through Costco and and it me- it's meaningful to her. But to me, this reads a lot more like the kind of essay that I would read in a writer's workshop where we're working on creative nonfiction essays, stories from our childhood. Um, I you know I wrote uh, an essay on my last game of Little League that I think was really great and nicely written, and I I really enjoyed that process. But I would never send that to a college, even though it was written well, because it doesn't tell them anything about who I am now. Um, You're you're asking too much of your reader to try and pull out features of your identity from a story that happened years and years and years ago. Um, When you were reading essays, and you told me before this can you get in there that I've read like 11,000 essays in my career? And I
0: was like, yeah, well,
1: I'll out to make that happen. So Christina's read over like 11,000 essays in her career. Um, when you're reading essays, what ultimately is the product of that read? So you read through the content and then it shows up somewhere in the application. How does that show up? What, what was your practice of taking written content from a student and then putting it into a form that could be interpreted for an admission decision?
3: Yeah. Um, basically a one-line takeaway. Um, so when I am summarizing a student, the personal essay was about uh, being an outside-the-box thinker as demonstrated through a robotics project, for example. Um, a crisp takeaway that can um, remind me of the essay and to bring in um, other readers uh, to know what that content was. Um, I would say there's a secondary purpose. Occasionally, um, I would read some voice of uh, a student uh, within an admission committee. And so I might uh, highlight a particular part of the essay that was particularly poignant or um, relevant uh, to to that takeaway so that the student was was present there. But that one line takeaway is, is the primary feature.
1: And I think that's so important. So important. Because if you don't have that, if you don't have clarity as the author of what that is, then it's going to be very hard for the admission officer to have that sense of clarity as they're putting that into the application process. Mm -hmm. And what I have found, Christine, is that the students that come to me who have looked at sample essays, who are thinking about this project as something that needs to be creative, that they need a gimmick, that they've got to have this grabby beginning because that's what they've seen in all of these sample essays, they are so focused on the project of executing the essay that they're not thinking about what that takeaway Anyways. should be, what the outcome of that process is going to be. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time here talking about what students shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, and And I think we are both really I, I am like you in my process, which is that I really want it to be student-centered. I don't look at the prompts with them. Uh, we do a brainstorm that's fairly open-ended. I, I, I kind of feel like anything you write can fit any prompt uh, that a common app is, is offering. But what can students do? I mean, I, I have run into some scenarios, even this year, with students who just say, I don't know what a college essay is supposed to look like. And it makes sense to turn to an example when you don't know what that is. And I think sometimes my explanations for a college essay can be unsatisfying to a student. Well, it's going to be about you and you can, you know, you can highlight things from your life and they're just like, I, come on, dude, like give me something that I can read. I'm a, I'm a visual learner, right? So what can students do if they're in this position? They don't quite know what to do.
3: Yeah, um, I think that the source of where you go for those essays is um, of utmost importance, and um, I think uh, college admission offices seem to be producing a lot more to assist students um, in this process. And um, uh, as an example, Emory has a wonderful five-part series of essays that their admission process liked with the admission officer comment about why they like that essay. And so I think that is just a great example of a quality source where you understand that this is an essay that is more related to the positive admission outcome. And you can see inside of the admission officer's thinking as to why. And I think that why is more applicable to your own essay than just reading a sample.
1: So Emory has samples Mm -hmm. like these. Um, I think Johns Hopkins has some essays that they've called out that they think are quite effective. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We have noticed, and I think like you can be a wonderful writer um, and someone who's really great at coaching students with writing and supporting their ideas. But there is something that is really essential about being in an admission office and understanding how the essay intersects with the admission decision and Mm -hmm. fits the application that is really key. Um, And, and, you know, for us, we just sort of say, listen, I know what I'm talking about. I've read these, not just because I read essays, but because I made admission decisions. And so when we talk to you on the podcast, anytime Beth is here or Sally, or we have our guests come on and talk about essay writing, we are talking about it from a place where there is an intersection with that decision outcome, which I think is quite different from looking at a piece of writing and assessing whether it's effective or not, based on what you perceive that process to look like. Um, And it's a little bit of us, I mean, I'm I'm kind of tuning our own horn here, um, but like that's why people tune into our podcast is is to hear a little bit of that perspective. Um, I had a question uh, with respect to that idea. So I'm a student and I go and look at some of these samples and I read what these admission officers have to say. As I'm reading through and writing my own essay, what am I looking for? How am I assessing whether I've done the job of finishing my college essay um, when I don't have Christine looking it over and giving me that feedback?
3: Yeah. Um, I would go back to that takeaway and um, ask yourself if the takeaway is clear or have someone read the essay and say, what is what is the takeaway? If you had to write a one sentence, this essay is about, um, what is that um, from, from reading this piece? Um, the second thing I'd say is uh, do an authentic check? Um, Does this essay sound like me? Um, Am I using vocabulary that is natural? Um, Does my personality come through in the way these words are coming together? And that's where, you know, a a close friend or a family member can be great at giving you that perspective of this sounds like you. And um, if it sounds like you, the takeaway is clear. And thirdly, you're proud of what you've written, then I think you've got the makings for a great piece.
1: In, in my writing uh, workshop, um, you know, my teacher was, was very fond of saying that you'll have paragraphs that you'll write that as paragraphs, you'll really love. You love the way you, you use this adverb or this turn of phrase that you use. You're really proud of it. But then when you look at the piece as a whole, you realize that that paragraph doesn't fit. That it's really not part of that story. And so one of the hardest things about revising and editing essays is being honest about the fact that I love this paragraph I've written. But it doesn't, help, it doesn't help my central message. It needs to go. I need to get rid of it. My piece is stronger without having it in there. And I, I think that that's a challenge. It's like you can fall in love with some stuff um, as you write it, and that's great. So you know, save it in a file. Um, go back and look at it if you want. But the essay has to have that tight central message that you're referring to. And I think I would add just one thing is that that central message also has to be something that is relevant in the context of what a college is looking for. Absolutely. So they are trying to get a sense of what kind of community member and student and contributor you're going to be. And so you want that takeaway to be more than you're wonderful at baking cakes, right? Like that could be a clear takeaway with a voice that sounds like you, but it's probably not something that is a central idea that colleges are looking for. But if through baking cakes, you've developed a community of people who you support within your school by bringing them goods regularly, that could be a takeaway that talks about your ability to be a cohesive member of, of a community and bring people together. Um, man, we, get, we have so much more to say, don't we? I think we're almost, we're out of time, essentially. But is there anything else that you wanna add, especially for these late starters? I mean, for students that are listening to this um, when it airs uh, on the 14th of October, they're quite a bit later in the process. Is there any kind of words of encouragement that you would offer? Uh, for them as they're staring down this this process.
3: Yeah. Um, I'd say to just trust your story that you want to tell. And um, love that. I love that. Uh, yeah.
1: Oh, you could, I didn't want you to stop <laughs> talking. You could say more.
3: Trust your story and make that takeaway clear. Um, yeah. Those two things I think are most essential right now.
1: I, I love that. I mean, that, that sense is, I, I think we should shout that at every, every senior mm-hmm. who's writing trust your story and who you are, what you have to offer, like bring that confidence into what you have to share. Don't let that doubt trickle in there where I saw this other essay and I needed it to be as good as that one. Yeah. Forget that. Trust yourself. Trust your story. That's a great place to leave it. Christine, that was great. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming yeah. on the show.
3: Thanks for having me, Ian.
1: Yeah. Maybe we'll get you on again. Uh, we come back. We are gonna talk about uh, merit scholarships and how to track them down, so don't go away.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Getting In. Uh, we've had a couple of really great conversations this uh, this week about getting ready for those early action submissions, talking a little bit about example essays and why maybe they're not the best thing to use when you're writing your own college essay. But because we are in October and because paying for college is on everybody's mind, we want to talk a little bit about one of the biggest words in financing your education, which is merit. Uh, And in order to do that, uh, I'm welcoming my colleague, Tara Piantanita-Kelly. Hey, Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. It's good to have you back. Um, Now, I... Merit, before I get into the questions, I got some big questions to ask you here about merit. (laughs) I had heard that merit was a particular term that was affiliated with the National Merit Program. And like, you can't actually say merit for broad scholarship, but what what do we mean when we talk about merit aid? Because families ask about it all the time.
4: Right, right. So, so merit aid really is just a form of, Financial aid that is not based on a student's demonstrated financial need. So it could be based on their academics or their athletics or their, you know, artistic ability. Um, so it's it's pretty much free money that is not based on finances. Okay,
1: okay. that sounds nice. I would like to get some of that. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so I think we see a lot of families that will say, "I don't qualify." For financial aid, when we start talking about financial aid, and we have to say, whoa, 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 financial aid doesn't necessarily depend on qualifying because there are these two buckets, right? Um, so what then are we telling families who are interested in finding scholarship money um, through this merit route? Uh, what's the initial just primer that you give them so that they understand these two categories of aid pretty well?
4: Well, it's it's funny that you use the term buckets because that's exactly the term I use. Oh, great! You know, <laughs> imagine you know that that uh, you're applying to a college. These colleges have different buckets of money. Like okay. They might have a, a need-based grant bucket that's based all on the family's finances, um, and most schools will also have a merit bucket, which is kind of everything else that is not based on on need. So, mm-hmm. um, we when when a family says uh, you know number one they what well, they say we don't qualify for financial aid and I'm saying well the federal direct loan, you can borrow that, your student can borrow that whether you make a million dollars or zero. So that's not quite accurate, but maybe you just don't qualify for any need-based grant aid, free money based on need. So if that's the case, then it just means you shift your focus and look for merit aid from a school.
1: Okay. And, And now merit aid is not something that's broadly available. I know that when I was working at Reed, we got questions all the time in our information sessions about merit aid. And I had to tell them, we only do need-based financial aid here at Reed College. Um And I think a lot of schools are in that boat, but it seems to me that more often than not, schools do offer some sort of merit aid. Is that is that a fair assumption that it's a tool that's used at most schools, but maybe not the schools that people want it to be available at?
4: <laughs> right. So um Many, many, many schools offer some form of merit aid. There's a handful of the most highly selective schools, the Ivy, Stanford, Reed, um, that they say you know they give a lot of money, but it's all based on demonstrated financial need. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about why and why they do that and why, you know, why they don't offer merit, but other schools do and. Um, So we can kind of delve into into that. But, uh, you know, the biggest source of merit scholarships and I use the term merit aid, merit scholarships, scholarships, all interchangeably means the same thing for me based on this, what we're talking about today. So um, we can talk about, okay, well, if we don't qualify for any of that need based bucket of money, where do we find the schools where that have that merit based bucket of money? that I might be able to get some.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so so these highly selective schools, they're not offering merit. And I remember reading a book and like within the first page, it says something about this person's background. It was like, she got a full ride to Columbia. She was super, and it was just like, no, that doesn't exist. Get that out of your book. So like people believe that you can get a full ride to Stanford. And that's based on financial need exclusively. There is no merit aid that's associated with, with, um, with that program. Now, a lot of people will say, give me a list of all the schools that offer merit aid. Uh, you get that question, I think, sometimes, don't you? Yes. <laughs> Pretty often. So that list doesn't exist, right? That would be a million-dollar idea. So what what do people actually need to do if they want to identify whether a particular college offers merit aid or not?
4: Yeah, so people are so disappointed when I say that database does not exist. You know, all yeah. schools, it just, it just doesn't. Just because, and if we tried to put it together, by the time we finished it, it would be out of date already because schools can change you know there's just really no way to, to do that so um it's a manual process if if a student is saying well i'm looking at these schools you know and they name some schools i'm going to say well you need to go on each one of those schools websites do a search for merit aid merit scholarships kind of follow that see if they offer any if they do you know what are the criteria do they list what the criteria is or do they are they just kind of vague saying oh you know we give these scholarships Um, And also, you know, do they require any additional application or essay or anything else the student needs to do in order to be considered for them? Um, And then finally, take a look to see if they offer merit aid, if there are any earlier deadlines that you Mm -hmm. have to meet in order to be considered. So a little bit of research before, you know, at this point uh, can yield bigger results. I've heard yeah. of people just missing missing merit opportunities just because they didn't realize there was an additional application or earlier deadline.
1: Those deadlines can totally catch you by surprise because you're thinking, all right, I'm going to apply regular decision. This school doesn't offer early action, but you overlook a priority deadline or a scholarship deadline or something along those lines. Where I know USC is a great example. They've got a later regular decision deadline, but they have a December 1st priority deadline if you want to be considered for scholarships, period. And so if you don't apply by that date, you're not going to be considered for scholarships. Um, So that's absolutely something you want to look into. I don't think that the priority deadlines will ever come in advance of an early action deadline, uh, at least not that I've seen, but they will sometimes be quite a bit earlier than regular decision deadlines. So keep an eye out for that. Absolutely. Um, now, merit aid is not automatic. It's meritorious, right? Like you earn it because of certain aspects or attributes that you have in your profile. So a school might offer merit aid, but I still might not get any money from that school. Right? How do I identify whether a school is going to be interested in giving me an incentive to choose them uh, based on the information that's available on the website?
4: Ah, okay. Perfect. Yes. So- In order to answer that, we're going to talk a little bit, you know, merit aid theory. (laughs) So um, think of merit aid from the school's perspective. Let's say you're a school and you have this bucket of merit money and you get to decide who to give that to. Right. Okay. So it, essentially, what it is is the school is offering a discount to a particular student in the form of merit aid. That's really mm-hmm. all it is. <laughs> it's because this that particular student has something that the school wants. Maybe it's great academics. Maybe it's you know musical talent. Maybe it's athletic ability. Something. So um, in, in order to kind of identify what those schools are that might give you know the student some merit scholarships, uh, you know you're going to take a look at um, the different um, aspects of the school. Like for instance, let's say um, my son Peyton is applying to nine different schools and three of them are what we would call challenge schools or reach schools where he has not a great chance of even being offered admission. Uh, the next three are just right schools. He'll probably get offered admission. He's kind of the typical student there. And then the last one is uh, what we you might call a, um, you know, a safety school. We call it a no problem school. And that's the school where not only does he have a really good shot of being offered admission, he's going to score toward the top of that school's applicant pool. And those right. are the students that they tend to offer the merit scholarships to. So imagine like you're one of the admissions professionals at uh, one of his you know, challenge schools. And you take a look at his, uh, you know, admissions application and you notice that his record is lower than most of the students in your applicant pool. You know, are you going to be really motivated to offer him a discount to enroll? Eh, Maybe, maybe not. But let's say now you're an admissions reader on the, um, at one of his no problem schools and you see that his admissions information is higher than most of the students at your school. Now you're much more motivated to say, Hey, we want you. And we're going, we're willing to offer you this discount for you to come here instead of go to that other school.
1: Yeah. If you think about it from a competitive perspective, you know, a school in a challenge, a challenge school might say, look, we're probably the best school this kid's going to get into. I mean, like realistically speaking, because they're the bottom of our profile. And so we don't need to give them an extra reason to choose us. They're just going to say, that's, that's the best school that I got into. Now, I would disagree that challenging schools are better than no problem or just right schools, but I think a lot of families will perceive it to, to you know, be structured in that way. Um, I love the idea of calling the no problem schools financial safeties, because if they do offer merit scholarships, there is some safety there with respect to the financial process, because they're they're much more likely to want to say, hey, we're going to give you a generous scholarship. We want to have you on our campus, because you're going to help Lift the discourse on campus. You're going to be one of the smarter students in class, and that's going to make our whole institution better.
4: Yep. Yep. Well, like I, I for instance, went to college on a combination of academic and music scholarships. So this particular, my school said, you know, hey, we need a, a good flute player, and you know, Tara was all state. So let's see if we can, you know, talk her into coming to our school so she can play yeah. in our, you know, our symphonic band it worked. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll go to your school at a reduced price. That works for me. So um, I had something that they wanted um, right. in the form of this musical talent, but academics um, it by far is is the much bigger driver for merit scholarships.
1: And, and these can change. I mean, like institutions can have different priorities. They might have a new president that comes in and says, we're going to try and beef up our music program. Or they might come in and say, we've got enough flute players. Now we're going to try and make our theater program stronger. We've got a reputation right. in flute now because Tara came here and was so fantastic. Now everybody wants to play flute at our institution, right? So these things will fluctuate, but the idea is that colleges are assembling their classes and they want certain kinds of students with different talents to come and be a part of that class. And a merit scholarship is one way for them to be able to do that. Um, With the most selective schools, the ones that don't offer merit scholarships, they get to sort of hand select what that class looks like they already have their pick from among a really really deep applicant pool and that's why those merit scholarships aren't as important to them uh, and they don't offer them at all yeah. uh, now where you talked about a three-three-three 3 kind of distribution which i think is a nice normal distribution across a college list three that you're confident in three that are right in the middle three that are going to be reaches and, and less likely um sometimes we'll have conversations though with parents who are saying well i want a few I want a little bit more financial safety. Um, I I want to feel like I've got multiple offers, um, in, in my back pocket. Uh, what kind of advice do you give them as they're rounding out that list? And what is another good reason to apply to more schools that are going to offer merit aid and to look for more schools that are going to offer merit aid?
4: Yes. Yes. There, there's definitely a strategy there for sure that we'll talk about. Um, so now I just lost my train of thought. Um, why is there, why should, okay, if you, if you need some more merit, schools with merit aid. So yeah, it just apply to, to more of those schools that are, what did you call them, financial safety schools? Financial
1: safety schools, yeah. Yep,
4: yep. And, and the, the thought is, so let's say you, instead of applying to three, you apply to six. And you let's say you get into all six and five of them give you nice merit scholarships to say, hey, come here That's instead. Great. Then That's great. You, you can go back and ask all of them uh, to see if they could take a, you know, say, hey, gosh, you know, can these other schools gave me, you know, a bigger merit award, making it easier to go there. You know, can you take a second look and maybe increase the merit scholarships that you offered me so I can come to your school instead? So, you know, try to negotiate with them. Now, that being said, not every school will do that. Some schools will just say, Nope, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's no harm, no foul. There's no downside to doing that. And at least now, you know, you haven't left any money on the table, right? But it never really hurts if you have multiple Um, scholarship offers from multiple schools, that can be a way to kind of leverage some uh, additional scholarship dollars.
1: So having a few more offers can help you potentially to get more money from the school that you're going to prioritize within that group. Yes. Now, can you negotiate with a school that didn't offer you any merit aid because they don't offer merit aid and say, hey, look, these other schools gave me merit aid. Can you amend your offer and give me some funding? What happens like, if you ask that question?
4: So like if you were to go to, to Stanford and say, hey, these other schools gave me merit money, Stanford's going to say, good on you, mate. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> we, we don't offer any. We can't, you know, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: That's great. Choose the other school or pick us. Right. You, know, right. where...
4: you know, come, come to us and pay full price or go to the other school and pay less. It's your choice.
1: That's right. Okay. Well, I, this is great. And I think, I think a great reminder for families of one of the, the smart ways to balance out that list. It's not just about safety in terms of whether you're going to get in, but also thinking about the cost of attendance. Because once you've got those offers and you have to pay for it, then, then it really gets real, doesn't it?
4: It really gets real. Yes. <laughs>
1: All right, Tara. Thanks a lot for coming and, and walking us through uh, this segment today. I know it's going to be a real popular one with our listeners. So thank you.
4: Excellent. Thanks, Ian.
1: All right, folks, when we come back next week, we're going to have looks like Beth in the hosting chair again, and we're going to continue our essay work. So we're going to be talking about supplemental essays, first diving into that extensive Yale supplement. I think there are eight different essays that they ask uh, for in that application. And then we're also going to tackle the question of whether you should write honors college essays. Is it worthwhile to you? And what is that honors college experience? Uh, We will also unpack The difference between six letters, and I think Tara could give us a crash course, but she's not going to be back next week, uh, on EFC versus NPC, right? Some some important distinctions to be had there as you're calculating uh, what you might need to pay for any given college. Uh, Until then, welcome to the middle of October. I hope you're all getting some work done. As Lauren said in our first segment, just do the work and you'll find that you are over the hump uh, in no time. Thanks a lot for being here and have a great weekend.